Organizations have no needs. They have resources. And when you get into philanthropy, but not even philanthropy, anything organizationally with some kind of culture, it's always about what we lack. And that's where the focus is instead of what we have. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where every week you'll hear conversations with experts who are knee deep in their work to make the world a better place. These people are tackling some of the world's most difficult problems, and still they think a bright future is possible for us all. We need to see the future that they see. And I found that the insights they give us allow us to make steps in our own lives to thrive with more purpose and progress and connection. So hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've been devoted to shining a light on insight and innovation going uncelebrated. And I've also been a business owner for 30 years, working really hard to keep the health, the humanity in healthcare. Well, that journey has taught me that there's threads of connection for us all. And if we share the kind of insights that we're going to share with you today, we can all be multipliers for our best impulses. So today we're going to meet with thought leader, expert in philanthropy, Jim Lord. Now, don't uh, let that word philanthropy send you flying for the doors. Jim is going to make us feel like we are soaring about what we've got to contribute to the world, each of us, each and every one of us, in the way of our skills and our heart and our determination to make the world a better place together. If you're here listening to this podcast, it's probably because you're part of the conspiracy of goodness, an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about. So welcome, Jim Lord. Jim is an author, a sought-after speaker, and a philanthropy expert, founder of the Center for Leadership in Philanthropy. And here's where we ordinary people are connected to Jim's work. A quote from one of Jim's books is, I'm fascinated by questions about why people invest in a cause and why they invest in themselves. And I think today, that's what we're going to understand by the end of this podcast, how and why we invest in ourselves and how that ripples out in ever-widening circles. So Jim, welcome. I probably did a poor job explaining the scope of your work. Help me talk to people more about what you're doing. I think you did a terrific job of it. I think that, Dr. Linda, that thing that I would speak to first is the one about contribution and the fact that I believe that I've learned through personal experience that virtually everyone that I have met or had contact with has this abiding, almost desire, a die, dying desire to, to make a contribution, to make a difference, to have counted in some way. And yeah, I learned it through financial philanthropy with people, whether it's, you know, a hundred thousand or a few million or a billion dollars. But I think it's, it's the same kind of impulse. And it just fascinates me. Early on, I wanted to know why do people give? And people have written books about this and so forth. I really was curious about it. And sometimes I've been said to be a curious fellow in. But the pun intended uh, in that, I guess. And that's the last time I'll try to be funny, I promise you. So what I did, though, was I started looking at it and I realized that I actually didn't want to answer the question about why people give. I wanted to give individuals the opportunity themselves 
to talk about why they give. And the interesting way that we go about that is not to ask the question, why do you give, but instead to ask for a story. And so I think you can appreciate that because that's where you come from as well. And then to mine from that story, what we can learn about the desire to give something to someone else to, and to connect. And let me just say that one other thing about that, in this time of the pandemic and what we've lived through with social upheaval and so forth, we have become to a large degree isolated. We're doing things virtually. And what's really fascinating to me is how the act of contribution actually is a way to really connect with another person with humanity. And so it's really a mental health pr promoting way of uh, being. So how am I doing? This is, <laughs> this, this is huge. I mean, this is huge because we're all sort of a little wobbly right now. The pandemic yes. feels over for many of us. We have an international audience. I over, have friends all over and it's not over in Canada. It's not over in Europe or most places in the world. And, and those of us that are fortunate enough to um, be on the other side of that, now we're trying to find our footing in a whole new world where priorities are different. And I think that feeling like you can connect with others in a time of uncertainty, that the connection is what keeps you on that tightrope when everything else is ambiguous or or even unclear. And in fact, that, that uncertainty, the ambiguity, I'm trying to continue to stay in the fact that that is a gift, that we didn't choose it, but in fact, and this, you know this too, and from your own writing, that there is a gift in that. Brenda Reynolds, who wrote a book called uh, TDD, To Be Determined, and she came out of a divorce where she said she went up, down, sideways, and everything else, and able to reframe the trauma of that, and that being able to live with uncertainty through much yeah. of the time to create an identity for herself. And that's really what we were talking about here, I think, mm -hmm. an identity where one feels stronger as a result instead of the trauma simply traumatizing. And maybe we'll get into that post-traumatic growth rather than stress that can come out of a time like this. Okay, so I want anybody who's listening to notice how Jim has a way of turning things on its side where we would... <laughs> Normally, most of us go and no, most podcasts, by the way, most, uh, not most, but many podcasts are very problem oriented. They dive deep into the problem and want us to understand all the complexity and all that. And I love, you know, I love that we need, we need those helpers out there, but I'm solution oriented. And this is what I love about Jim is he's taking everything and kind of turning on its side. And that's from a, I would call it a, is it an organizational philosophy? How would you describe, um, people hear me talk about it from time to time, AI, the other AI is called appreciative inquiry. And this thing that Jim keeps doing, turning ideas on their positive side, and looking at them from that angle is characteristic of the appreciative inquiry mentality. So talk to us a little bit about that in our times. Well, you were talking at first about people coming into the podcast talking about problem-solving orientation. And I got so far into that that I got interested in the definition of the problem. And let's make, pay attention to that before we try to get to the solution. And how can we get to understand that better? And then I heard about and then met David Cooperwriter. So David Cooperwriter, he really, had, he turned my head around, was one of the 
well, second or third people after the Copernican revolution and a few things like that, that I said, well, there might be a completely different way to see this. And he had started at the Cleveland Clinic where he was going in to do an organizational inquiry out of Case Western Reserve University, where he was a, a doctoral student. And what he found was instance after instance of amazing cooperation that he just didn't expect to find. He then went to meet with the board at the end of his inquiry, and he started to report that. And this isn't exactly what people are looking for. They wanted to find the problems and to solve them. But in fact, what I've come to see is that if you pay attention to that, what is working, and if you can, even if Allow me to use the metaphor, since we're talking about healthcare, a metaphor of the, if the patient is alive and there is a breath there, or the organization is alive and there is a breath, if you can just get a glimpse, just a glimpse of something that is positive, you then can gain the confidence and a strong, when you talked about being wobbly, a strong place to stand to deal with come what may. So when I saw that, I said, okay, I've got to get deep. And I actually left my practice completely for a number of years as I went in into a deeper study into this and practice and, and, and as well. And of course, today, and probably for now, well, 30 years since David actually came to the first retreat that I tried to do, where I was teaching something of his work, because he was interested in philanthropy, and we had a focus on philanthropy as well. So when we looked at this at that time, we really realized that if you can ask questions that can help people get at the stories that are important in their lives that are often overlooked and thought to be not really important, if you can pause long enough, pause long enough, as you say, you can really uncover some wonderful gems. And again, the sense of strength to deal with what come what may. And that's not to say that come what may is why you're doing it. It's rather to be able to innovate and to be able to dream and to be able to be inspired about new possibilities that until you have that confidence, you really don't feel that they're within reach. So I always like to periodic points in the podcast, give people a what to do next, like really concrete. What I take away from what you just said, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong but if we are in a situation that seems all turmoil or really unstable, if we can find one or two things that are working, it, it, what is working now? And then stand on those things. That's right. That's it. You got it. Now, I mean, there's a lot more that can be added to it, but it really, that base, you've got it, Linda. That, that, and, and if you can begin to learn that discerning ability, I mean, mine was always to see where the problem was. But in fact, if you say instead to see where the life is, the life-giving properties in a particular situation or circumstance, all this started for me. And I realized then when I look back in my own life that the first major book that I did, I used the phrase, organizations have no needs. They only have resources. So I actually had been thinking in this direction somewhat, but never had the theoretical or the practical in terms of how one would conduct an interview in order to be able to uncover this. But you said something earlier about it being organizational. And what I'd like to bring out is that, yes, it started that way, but now it's gotten applied in so many other ways. Global social change, which we granted with organizations coming together, but individuals who want to do something to make a difference in the world. And they are able to see it, the scale of, of uh, global, but also individual lives. And I think it would be fair to say now that for me and for the people I get to work with, we want this to be a worldview. It's a way you look at the world instead of the world as a problem to be solved. The world really is a mystery and a bunch of resources, assets, and strengths to be discovered. What do you think? I love that. 
<laughs> I forget who says it. I better, I say it often enough. I better get it down. But there's someone way smarter than me who said that most of the problems in the world just haven't had enough imagination applied to them. Yeah. And actually Einstein said something about that imagination is really more important than knowledge. And that's what I think to go back to your other theme earlier about these times with the social and political and economic upheaval and the pandemic really presents us a whole new time to relook at things in a different way. And to consider that we're not just trying to get smarter. I think you and I, we spent our lives getting trying to get smarter, but this is really about getting wiser, isn't it? Mm. That if we take our personal experience and we take the trauma of it and the and what we feel for other people who have not been as fortunate as we have. But that, how else are you going to get wisdom except through those tough times? So true. It's so true. Okay. So for instance, just to be really grounded in practicalities, I share a family farm with my brother and sister after my father died. We would fight like cats and dogs all the time because we're all director kind of personalities. And when my dad died, we all rushed in and thought we were <laughs> going to be the boss. My poor brother. <laughs> but anyway, I found that this, this this works, and I think I, I probably used it without knowing it. This this system you're talking about with my with my son and my brother both. If you focus on what you have in common and what you can both agree on right from the beginning, then you've got a platform to handle or go into the harder stuff that make that can make you both crazy. Right, right, and in negotiation technique, it's really clear that the way to start is not at the adversarial, but at the agreement stage yeah. of this, and it, it's it can be powerful. And, and but it, but Linda, it is about first effect. I want to say changing. I want to say though affecting our heart. I don't want to say changing it. So allowing our opening up our heart enough to where we're able to actually see and want the agreement. And so in some respects, we become a model for the other person as well, that yes. we're trying to embrace rather than to fight, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what happens with my brother the most. I can tell when he just simmers down, when he when he's like surprised that I said something that was collaborative or generative or, you know, supportive of his point of view. He's like surprised for a minute. He doesn't know what to do because he's just all ready to fire back at me. And then we can move on. Well, let me say that to build on that a bit, the other thing to do is rather than having the answer, there was a Nobel Prize winning novelist from Egypt who said the, uh, the person who is got the answers is the clever person. The person who has the questions is the wise person. So thinking about, and I try to do this almost every time, I actually have a question mark written down on a piece of paper here to try to reframe the statement I would make into a question to in invite engagement. And rather than me being so bold as to think I know what somebody else's experience is already. So shifting it to being compatible and in agreement and also to look for the best and also a question instead of a statement. Oftentimes I'll say something like this, which is I remember one really credible meeting where I was doing a lot of the talking and I said, oh, wait a minute, would you please put a question mark after every single statement I've made, because I really don't know. I think maybe, but I don't know, right? And that, well, and that kind of assured, that kind of vulnerability, admitting that uh, yeah. opens all kinds of doors for connection, doesn't it? Yeah, and I don't think I was ever able to be as vulnerable as when I started to learn some real things. More that I learned about myself and I learned in experience 
And then to really say, now I can begin to admit that, because I certainly knew a whole lot more when I was in my 20s than I know now. Right. Well, yes. And, you know, we are all absorbing whatever life experiences are thrown at us. I always say, you know, nothing that happens has any meaning unless we decide how it changes who we are and how we live. Wow. Yes. Right. That's really what it's about, who we are and how we we live. You know, I recently had a a great friend whose 29-year-old son died, and I was quite distraught. I'm surprised. I was in Illinois when I heard it about in Vermont. I'm surprised they couldn't hear me wailing in Vermont. And then I just, you know, got my composure and I thought, now wait, how is this going to change who I am and how I live? Because once I get over that hurdle, Brian's loss, then I can think about how I'm going to treat my own kids with more gratitude or composure or how I'm going to stop to smell the roses instead of working, working, working. I'm going to take a bike ride, whatever. Once I can put, add positive meaning to something going forward, nothing that happens has any meaning until we decide how it's going to change who we are and how we live. Then I can move on from great tragedy very often. And I think that's exactly what you're doing in this ability to flip things on the positive side and look at it from there. Yeah. And I, I wrote that down because who I am and how I'm living. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a very famous book. I, I can't claim that one. I think I got that idea from a very famous book by Richard Bach called Illusions. Oh. Yeah. The great book from like the 1970s. But I want to get to your book. Okay. So the reason why we're having this conversation is because more oh. than a couple people in my circles said, you got to meet Jim Lord. And you got to talk to him about the notions of bounce back higher. So let's dive into some of the things. It's a little book. You can see how little it is. And I love it. My own book is really small too. And I think that, that these days call for us to be more conservation of words. Well, let me just say to you that that's one third of what I had written because it's important then to... I learned that as a photographer, that it's not the pictures you take, it's the ones you're willing to show. <laughs> That's so true. It's like, um, I'm not sure. I think it's Mark Twain. We always say we use this in ever widening circles. I write an email and then I cut, 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 cut it back until if I cut one more word, it would bleed. (laughs) That's a good, in this day and age of everybody just scanning every email for what can help them survive and thrive. That's always a good tactic. Okay. So I want to ask you about some concepts in here that made me feel like I was soaring. Okay. The first one is we, we've kind of been dabbling around the edges of it. We've talked about, we've talked about this notion of contribution. Like I believe from my knowing all those thousands of people's lives in my dental practice, like really deeply knowing people. And then with ever widening circles for eight years, getting to know these thought leaders that we've written about, I built up this notion that I think every single one of us is uniquely built to contribute something. And then I come across this line in your book, which I'd like you to talk about. You say, acknowledging what we bring, uncomfortable as that is to own up to, that is the work. The purpose and the power of our impact makes it worth the discomfort. We show up differently, more inspiring, yet humble. So I think you're asking us to to admit that every life experience we've had led, led up to this moment and our ability to contribute something unique. Yes. And owning up to that is probably the largest thing that I, that I work with, with folks. 
whether we're in a retreat or whatever the situation, the circumstances might be, because we've learned not to brag, uh, not to be prideful. And so the, the job is for a person or for, for me with someone is to stay in humility, to stay grounded in humility, not to try to take that away and say at the same time that there are contributions that you've made and there are contributions well beyond anything that you may have imagined. We start the retreat with a question like this, which is think back to a time when somebody saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself and it made all the difference in your world. And when you think about that for everyone, and I would invite people to do that for themselves, what you'll do is you'll, you'll find oftentimes that it's not a person who's in the business, like a teacher or someone like that, of having influence. And that person has no idea that they've made that kind of a contribution to your life. That's a contribution, right? Because it's about your identity. It's about who you are and the way you're living. And it has such a formative and at whatever age, if still a formative role in one's life. So I think it's very, very powerful, but it takes stepping back a little bit to recognize it. And then what I want to do, because since you're so good at noticing the flipping that I'm doing, is to flip it around the other way. If, if somebody else is so influential with you and they don't know it, how about you? Is it possible that you have more influence with people and somebody's talking about you now and the influence that you had? We usually don't get that feedback. We don't usually know about that kind of influence. Mm -hmm. And again, even teachers, social workers, therapists, people who have, whose work is to have that kind of influence, coaches and so forth, don't hear it often enough. And that is something we can change. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. You and I can right now change it by being aware because you are very conscious of the importance of awareness and mm -hmm. simply by being aware and recognizing, I mean, this podcast, this relationship with you will change my life. It will make a difference if I pay attention to it instead of thinking it's all about me sending something out, right? So true. We made a practice at this dental practice, this large dental practice. My husband and I have run together for 30 years of writing handwritten notes almost every day. I have a little stack of three to four note cards. How it started was we, we used to have a community yard sale in our yard at the at Fiddlehead Dental and then give all the money to the local battered women's shelter. And one day, it must have been an older person's house had gotten cleaned out. The people brought all this stuff and there was a box, I'm telling you, this big full of note cards. It might have been, <laughs> yeah, on every topic in the world or blank. And that... 25 years ago, got us going on this. Well, we had the cards. And um, I tell you, I get comments from my patients all the time about how those, the little notes were precious to them. And I know that I have saved every single note that anybody's ever written to me. You know, excuse me for a second, I'm going to say to you that there are stu studies, some research I was reading about people who had suicidal ideation and received a personal letter handwritten and how it made a difference. I think it's much more powerful. I mean, what's really great, because you're really the, the maven of all the internet and social media yeah. and all of that, to break, we can now break through that yeah. with a handwritten note. So yeah. I want to applaud you for that. And I make myself like sometimes, oh, I, one time I was with Brittany, our producer here, or I was with her online because we've never actually been in the same room together, which is really weird because she's my right hand woman. And she just gotten her hair done. And it was the most amazing color of hair I've ever seen in my whole life. And she has this, it was just voluminous. And 
it was like art on her head. And I was thinking that and then not saying it. I mean, how many times have we went around, been around an 11 year old when we're really, really admiring how mature they're being or whatever? How many times do we miss the opportunity to say it? Yeah. Like I usually try and say, instead of, um, I'm really proud of you, Warren, to my nephew, I say, I'm really impressed by you, Warren. There's a little difference in that. That's very important. There's something I've thought about. I said to my son-in-law just today when he said, I said, how far did you run? Because he looked like he was kind of, and he said five miles. And I said, I was proud of you and uh, proud of him. And and when those words came out, it wasn't really quite right. Like, how do I own, even if he were my son directly, I'm proud of him? No, impressed. Yeah. Try, try it. It's just, it makes a whole world of difference. And it's these sort of language matters that, and that I really like about your work, Jim. So let me pose a few things that I found in your work and you can give us the on them. Okay. All right. So here's something that Jim says, instead of seeing only needs, we should see resources. And isn't that the, the crux of things, right? We just run around seeing all that needs to be done is seeing instead of celebrating what what's done or what's right there for to be used as resources. Talk to me about that. Yeah, exactly. To celebrate what is present. There was something about a default setting that we'll go back to the deficit and we'll look at what's missing, what's wrong. And actually, there's a, a good reason for that in human life that you might want to do that. But most of us have pretty much got a lot of things going for us. And then we tend to overlook those in order to just solve the problems. Kind of the same thing we were talking about earlier. One of the first books that I wrote on philanthropy, on raising money, in it, I the first thing I stated was organizations have no needs. They have resources. And when you get into philanthropy, but not even philanthropy, anything organizationally with some kind of culture, it's always about what we lack. And that's where the focus is instead of what we have. And it really is a discipline that is, it can start out easy, but it's tough to hold it. And I will tell you that there are a number of thought leaders, people in great positions of influence, people who are would be called philanthropists, who have drawn parameters around themselves and talk about how they haven't done very much or how great the needs are instead of celebrating what already is. Because the way to get the half a glass that's empty full is to pay attention to the fullness, not to the emptiness, right? You know, you're great at bringing, I never said that before, but you you bring me out there, Linda. (laughs) That is. That's it. And then to try to understand the conditions that made possible getting that half a glass full to begin with. First, marvel at it, the mystery and just the wonder of it all. And then how did it get that you got half a glass of water? What were not so much even the how to do it? What were the conditions that were present? that enabled that? What contributions were made that allowed that to happen? And that doesn't mean that that's what you're going to do to get the other half full. Instead, what it really means is you're going to have the confidence that you can invent, you can innovate, you can be inspired, and you can use your imagination, if we like alliteration, to try to find new ways to explore possibility. That is... So this is what's available to all of us. When when we when we feel like there's a lot of scarcity in our lives. Yeah, right. And and we all are reacting to scarcity and God help us the news and the social media. It's all about fear and scarcity and what if they do this and what if they take away that and 
I love um, love something you said. Instead of feeling hateful, seek to understand. I say something similar to that sometimes. You know, change division to discovery. Division. Every time to yeah. discovery, like every time I feel like, oh, my brother's driving me crazy. My, my brother's driving me crazy. I my poor brother. I talk about him all the time. <laughs> But we all have somebody like that in our life that <laughs> helps us at our growing edges. <laughs> I say, Alex, that is a fascinating opinion from my perspective. I don't understand. Help me understand. And I do mean that sincerely. And he explained something to me. And nine times out of 10, I had no idea that's where his opinion was coming from. And I'm a little lighter about him. And then I'm a little more expanded about other people that might think like him and I can go on. So what about this, these times without getting into politics, because we stay away from politics pretty religiously here. What about this time can help us go from the hatefulness and the division to the discovery and the understanding? Well, first of all, to recognize that difference is really the nourishment that allows you to flourish. And that sounds very theoretical and not very useful, particularly, but it's something I keep trying to come back to is when I'm confronted with difference, there actually is something of value and good that's there. But I will tell you, Linda, that's my personal work right now is to change from those situations in which I feel, oh, can you believe what he or she, they said? And how is it that they believe that? And I will say one in particular is being anti-science. I remember back, because I'm so oriented to inquiry and questions, and about third grade, I asked my father, why do you have to study science? I really didn't know why. And he said, that's a great question. Ask your teacher. I asked my teacher and my teacher really didn't give me an answer. I didn't hear any of the passion for why he chose to um, uh, be a scientist and teach and teach science. So I think that all of that keeps on reinforcing for me the need to try not just to be empathetic, because that's good. That's not a great word, but it's a little bit close to sympathetic. And that's not really what I'm trying to do is to pity the other person, but just exactly what you're trying to do is to understand. I grow if I can understand instead of rejecting it and saying, certainly not saying, how could I convince them a person of my way? I'm just trying to understand how did you come to this? With, I mean, I wouldn't say in exactly those words, but that's what I really want to know. And I think that I probably would also be in the same of the same opinion if I had some of those same experiences. We have in the book, we got a, actually we show a video that you can link with of a man who is Kim Scott, who I'll be talking with tomorrow, and he is leading a, a movement to destigmatize mental health. And the way that connects to what we're talking about is he he says in the field, the enlightened people say, the question is not what's wrong with you. The question is what happened to you. And what he realized, you know, let that one sink in for a minute. It takes the blame off the person and puts it into the circumstances where it belongs. But wait, if you think that's something, try the third one. He came to his third retreat with me. He honored me with that, his presence there. And he said, you know, Jim, after about the, just before we were ready to leave, I think he got me aside and he said, you know, this is about possibilities, right? That's what this work is about. What could be possible? He said, so the third question should be not what's wrong with you, not what happened to you, but what's possible for you. So now, To go back to the person that I differ with, I'm not trying to figure out what's possible for them. I really am stopping it at the degree of trying to learn where they're coming from and how it makes sense to them. 
what their framework is. And I'm admitting the fact that I'm not particularly good at it. I'm practicing and I'm trying to get better, but I'm trying to keep my heart in that place rather than simply an emotional reaction. That is part of the power of the pause is to keep us, right? Yes. The power of the pause is to go, whoa, that thing that they just said, oh my God, that offends me or whatever we might say to ourselves. And then we launch into tit for tat or whatever we do. Right. But to be able to pause and just say, whoa, that comes at me out of nowhere. I don't understand that at all. And be genuinely curious. Yes, because what I have found is that people are much more curious than they think they are and that they, because of the rush for the problems and everything that needs to get done, the to-do list and so forth, they they overlook that curiosity that they have. It's really powerful. So you take, if you can take a, just take a breath, just take a breath before beginning to launch in. And and what I try to do as well is to get my feet grounded on the ground so that I feel that I'm well supported and then open up my heart to be able to listen and to ask questions and to show, allow a person to see the genuine curiosity and desire to understand. Not like, how did you get to that idea kind of understanding, but to honor the person. You know, the thing is, Linda, every once in a while, this has been going on for about 10 years, when I think I'm so adversarial with another person and so different, I would never want to be friends with them. I hate to even say that, hate to even say that, but it's true. But what I would say is, what would happen if I were in real trouble? I was going to die and this person was there and they could help me. It's a human being. I'm a human being. That's really what we're at. Political beliefs or whatever are really quite superficial, even though we talk about them being yes. deep values of things we believe in. But life and death is is much more serious than that. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I tell a similar story to just kind of get people machinating about what's really important in being in the present, right? Like to really have hate for someone or to dislike them. You have to think a lot about their past and yours and their future and yours. You're so not in the present with them. Yes. And so just like that here in Vermont, black ice is a common thing. And what happens is typically you're going down the road and it's 32 degrees out and there's two feet of snow. And all of a sudden you're going down the highway and somebody spins out in front of you. So your knee jerk reaction, most of us, most of us, we don't know this person. We're going to stop. We're not, we're not going to see some car go over the embankment and keep on driving. Right. So most of us will stop. So there's the, our common humanity. Now, most of us will get out of the car and make our way down the, the hill to say, are you okay? Are you okay? Maybe we saw the car roll or something. But I was surprised to learn that with black ice, your your whole you have to shut down that impulse because if you get out of the car and the next person oh, starts spinning, wow. you are just like a sitting duck. Oh my. And that brings me to this notion of even though I know that, what would I do? What would I do if a car went? I know that. And I remember the day that somebody shared that with me, that the minute the police arrived, they start shouting with a bullhorn, everybody get back in their cars. Because that's the problem is that the you can be a sitting duck. And if you're in your car, at least you have half a chance. 
Okay, so where do we go with that? Do Is our common humanity so strong that we would risk that moment, even though we might know that? Oh. To slide wow. down that hill. And I can tell you, I would. I just would. I'd take a good hard look behind me and see if there's anyone coming. Then I'd go like hell down that hill. But, and I think most people would. You know, I have these conver- deep conversations with patients for 30 years. And most people in, in Houston during the big flooding, People were rowing their rowboats up to porches. Nobody said, what's your politics? They said, get in the boat. Yeah. You know, yeah. when Houston had its big hurricane. I just think that there's a place right there in the present moment that we don't think too much about the future or the past. We just are present with each other as human beings. And it really goes back to your theme about who I am and my identity. Because if I go away from that and don't do what my impulse tells me to do is to lend a hand to that person, how does that change my identity, my self-identity, the way only I, nobody else needs to know about it? <sighs> yeah, that, that's, that's very insightful. I'm, I'm really glad you told that. Well, I like to, for us all to just think a, a little bit past the, these moments of, of agitation we have with each other, whether it's after we've been on, the, on social media and we come away going, oh my God, or watching the news or whatever. These, these moments of agitation, they really require us to not, li- not be in the present. They require us to, oh, you know, if this keeps going, then this is going to happen. It's all about fear. Right. Right. And then we've got to live in the past when people are trying to get us scared about the future because they, they conjure up all kinds of examples about the, from the past from their perspective that supports their story. I just am trying more and more often to be happy in the present. And one of the ways to get to the present for me and that we have shared because we did just before we began to talk today was to just be silent, even though if you're on the phone or Zoom, is just to take three breaths and be silent and be able to be present and instead of the rush of thoughts and so forth. Yeah. And in fact, I'm doing that right now. I'm just trying to not, it's a little difficult to be speaking while I'm trying not to think. <laughs> but I tell you, Jim's got a nice little point there. That's a practical tip too. We can share with people. Every time I've ever met with Jim and there've been many times that we've been chatting about this or that, we have a lot in common. We just have casual chats or he interviewed me and blah, blah, blah. We always do a little moment of silence there. And that always helps me like shift back into the present moment with you. And I would recommend that as a strategy for people about how we cope with these, the turmoil of these times and the uncertainty. So let's take a break and I'm going to share with folks something really exciting that we're putting out there in the world. We are at Everwinding Circles focusing on the fact that more and more people are letting us know that they're thinking about a next climb that they're looking for ways to live with purpose and meaning. It's the college kids who come right out of graduation and want to make a difference from day one, or the person who's worked for 10 years for the man and and really wants to do something with meaning and purpose, or somebody like me who had a pretty good life, but then never quite felt like it was their calling. So we've created an event in October that we want to invite people to, and I'll share that in a, in a little bit of a break here, and then we'll be back. Do you thrive on learning from and collaborating with others for the good that's in the world? And becoming a better version of yourself, both personally and professionally, every day? We have built something just for you. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network. You can be a part of the first networking platform that prioritizes personal and professional growth, 
as we work together to make the world a better place. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network is a vetted platform of entrepreneurs, creatives, and professionals who are committed to making the future brighter for us all, people like you. On the network, you can ask questions and find help with projects, share trusted resources, request and attempt workshops, expand your network of thought leaders, and learn from the experience of others to catalyze your work, interests, and passion projects. This is a place where all of us who are doing something to improve the world, large and small, can flourish. The $35 a month membership fee includes attendance to exclusive monthly happiness hours, where you can hear from amazing speakers and influencers. It includes participation in monthly community challenges that will improve your own life and the world around you. You'll have access to the network's mentor match service to grow exponentially in your insight and decision-making. And you'll get automatic discounts on all of our courses and events. So join us, co-conspirators for goodness around the world. Those who are doing anything they can to make the world a better place are coming together on this network to collaborate, and it is time we find each other. Go to conspiracyofgoodnessnetwork.com for a simple three-step questionnaire to apply to be a member today. Let's connect, collaborate, and change the future. Okay, so now we're back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Okay, another thing that I wanted to chat with you about is a wonderful thing you say uh, in the book, are depths required to reach heights? Okay, so I really tuned into the fact that everybody wants to be happy all the time. And that's like some measure of a good life. And I don't know, but I think since the dawn of time, there has been struggle. And so I'm not sure that happiness all the time should be our measure for happiness. So tell me about the statement, are depths required to reach heights? It's only been in myself looking back in my own experiences to recognize the gifts. My mother dying when I was eight years old. And while the grief still resides in me, she gave me the gift of the independence and ability to think for my myself. And where I really see this is we do something, and let me see if I can do, uh, say this in a very brief way, that we do something in the retreat where people look at some of the points in their lives by themselves. There's, some of this is a very introverting work as well as uh, extroverting. And when they do that, Sometimes somebody will ask, what do you mean good things or bad? Can bad things be in there? I said, well, there's no real judgment on whether it's good or bad. If it's something that is significant to you, that's what you bring up. And there's an indefatigable spirit among people to actually reframe the worst into not necessarily the best, but to see the value in what was something you would never want to have happen to you or to anyone else. There's something there that we're meaning-making, sense-making beings. And it's important to us that we can say, I got something actually out of that. So 
Only though, as I, in the book, I talk with about Jay Hughes, philosopher, and in his work where he's talked about where depression or midlife crisis is actually a gift. And I have to say to you that I would not call it depth at all, but probably the last six weeks, I have not been very active. I was going probably 80 hours a week, finishing the book and things around that for almost a year. And then I said, I deserve a pause. Part of it is that I don't feel like I have a choice because the system's just kind of shut down for me. And I could rally whenever it was important when we'd have a conversation or I would do something with a, I don't call people clients. I usually call them friants because they start out as clients and they become friends. So it's a pretty weird sounding word, but I don't like to think of people as clients. So whenever I would have something like that, I could rally to the moment. And just as you or anyone else might do something like that, but I allowed myself what I never thought would be about a six week pause. And I will know better later, probably about the value of that. But when I was writing my very first book, which would be now 40 years ago or something like that, I can't believe it as I say that. I remember that I just found it was so difficult. I had just taken on a new uh, role with a consulting firm. I was trying to finish this book and Wendy and I had just become married. And I remember we were walking down the street and I said to her, you know, I don't know if I can take it. I think I'm going to have to quit. And she said, the marriage? I said, oh, no, 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 not the the book. (laughs) Maybe she didn't know that figural for me was the book and not the marriage that I would be thinking that that's what I'm going to quit. And I did for about three weeks. And boy, did I come back. I mean, I really meant that I wasn't going to go back to it. I came back with a, I would call it a vengeance with so much energy to do it. The power of the pause, it just cannot say enough about how that can be valuable. Yes, I I think there's something very important. I've never connected it to this, do we need to have depths to reach heights? Um, A great person I recorded uh, an interview with is named Dr. Suikumar Rao. He talks about, uh, in most of the world's great philosophies, there's a good thing, bad thing story where you're, you, things seem like it's a bad thing, but as the passage of time maybe reveal that it was just the thing that we can look back on as good. So I really, you know, like I, I look at some tragedy in my life, like a generative and gift-giving as well. So, okay, yeah. here's another thing that I just love that you wrote. You say that there's a, the French say, a strategic drawback from a setback allows us to advance further. Talk about strategic drawback. Yes, because uh, maybe really, yeah. you know, sometimes we don't like to think of how much stuff comes from the military, okay. but in fact, the notion of advancing and retreating really does. And that is a, a strategic move to be able to do that. In fact, that's why we call the work that we do. We used to call it a workshop. We call it a strategic retreat because that's what we think is something that can become a breakthrough, really valuable in a person's life, whether with me or not. I mean, just to be able to go off in some way, sequester yourself and take a strategic retreat. I'm not even sure that it's so necessary to think or sort out or to clarify anything. I think just taking that break, just that's why I believe so much in taking the breath, because that's not a thinking or clarifying thing. It's just saying, I want to take a break at this point. So I think that that there's, for me, a lot of power in it. And I see it in a lot of other people too. 
Okay. That is super. So what we're talking about over and over again is this having some agency over our perspective. Yeah, yeah. And things hit us right in the face, maybe between the eyes, good or bad, really doubling down on owning whatever meaning we give it. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me that the book that preceded Bounce Back Higher yes. was done just after 9-11. And at that, it's, it's strange what we wrote in the beginning of it about the difficult times. It's an evergreen. I mean, we have had difficult times would just change what it, it is. Granted that 9-11, especially for Americans, but as well, this trauma of, of all that's going on right now with pandemic and so forth, it's more global in scope. Well, where I'm going with this is that what we've done in this that book, What Kind of World Do You Want?, is report accounts of people who have done that turnaround, who have had the worst in front of them. Not all of them. Sometimes it's just everything is fine in life, kind of like you've said, everything is fine in life, but maybe there's more. Maybe there's something more that I can ascend to. And so we tell these stories. And I'd actually like to, if I may, invite the listeners and viewers today, if they'd like to have a copy of that, it's both available in PDF and an audio book, just send us a, an email and mention your name and one can have it with with our compliments. Uh, that, and that would be quest at jimlord.org. That's quest at jimlord.org.com. And quest, the first five letters of the word question, right? Keep coming back to you. Oh, that is a lovely thing. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's the book titled, What Kind kind of World Do You Want? Right. Right. It's a great question. That's a good question. After a pause, you know, when something strikes you the wrong way, you could pause and say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What kind of world do I want? I, I've never thought of that before. And that's a great idea to do yeah, that. Because if, we, if you can lift your gaze to a higher, that higher scale, then this is minutia that we may be dealing with here. And that there really is, and it connects directly with your contribution, with your identity. Because if you say, what kind of world do I want? Then, well, what am I going to do to influence that? That is the bottom line is that we're every day, we're creating our own reality. If I could just change one thing for people, change up one thing, it's it's the victim mentality. And of course, my message is all uh, is folks not feeling like they're a victim of the negative news or the craziness on social media. I mean, we create that by participating in it. And we could, if we only treated every single click like a vote, because that's what it is, the internet serves us what we last clicked on. It's looking at every single thing we chose to give our attention to. And so all that wackiness that we see and complain about, in in effect, we created it for ourselves because the way the algorithms work now. Yeah. And I know you could talk a good deal more about that to make it even more powerful. And it's, it's becoming even more and more important. And what, to me, what you're saying comes back to choicefulness. And I first was exposed to that in, in Gestalt a long time ago in school. And I keep trying to keep that alive for myself. There's a choice here. And I don't mind us taking a little detour into choice, but I was thinking about how we might fold that into the cultures we're creating around us. I don't want to have this podcast end without talking about this great notion that you have about focus on people first in our business lives. I guess we're taking a little detour into our business lives, but I guess it could happen in our personal lives. Focus on people first, and then the metrics will take care of themselves in business. 
I love that concept because it comes back to the culture we are helping to create every day. I guess it's Peter Drunker you refer to that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. And it's becoming more true all the time. There's more and more evidence of that. And one example of that is uh, University, Concordia University in Texas, that they were embarking about a year before the pandemic, both the strategic planning process and and a cultural reinforcement. In our work, we tend not to talk about culture change but instead about culture reinforcement or strengthening, because if, as we said at the very beginning, you were observing that if you can get a glance, a glimpse of something that's working, that's good in terms of culture, in terms of people's behavior and habits, then you've got something to work with. So it's not about culture change. There is something there that that's really of value. So this university started out with the strategic planning and like what often do, but they also had the cultural aspect of it, but they put the culture before they put the strategic planning. And boy, were they grateful for that when March of 2020 hit and all plans go out the window. And it's the culture that says this is our personal identity and our corporate identity. And therefore, we will do this in this circumstance. And this is a great way, a great takeaway for people in their business and working lives, because you can decide that to do to do exactly what you just said on a work team of three. Yes, yes. That's exactly. And in fact, you can, I really believe it can be one person because what happens is the, the power of your presence, this use of self as instrument, it does ripple outward to other people as they see the behavior that you model and so forth. And so therefore, back to the same theme we talked about very early, Linda, which is that you have more influence than you think you have. And Sometimes just the little passing thought or Mother Teresa's was said, um, sometimes just a smile. You never know what's going on with the other person. Sometimes just, and I've, I've been the recipient of that, where it's made a difference in my day when somebody simply, I don't even know who they are, and they just smiled at me. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is a great place to start wrapping up. I'd like you to oh, um, no, finish. No, no, no. I, I love being with you. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Uh, we could keep going. That's for sure. I opened the, the, my opening little message at the beginning of this podcast is that I talked to thought leaders who see an entirely different future as possible for us all. If we only knew what, what do you, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to take away as our next steps, if we only knew, or if we only do this starting today or tomorrow, tell me what that would be. Well, this will sound a little bit like a broken record or summary, but it's pause. It's to take a breath, to simply take a breath. You know, there's this, they talk about the normalcy bias that we want to return to normalcy. And that actually isn't, I mean, yes, I and everybody else wants some degree of that, some handrails, something that's familiar. But this is an opportunity to uh, reinvent, to reset, to redo. And so we, we have that one of taking a pause, taking a break. And we talked about how I've done that in my own life and how I really realized that I had to withdraw, not only to learn about appreciative inquiry and social constructionism, but I had to leave the conversation of fundraising because there were some wonderful people that I related to and I was working with, but I knew that I would be so influenced by them, just like this was before social media, that I needed to withdraw from that and, and not take part in that kind of a conversation. So that big pause before I came back into philanthropy in a completely different way. 
So that's one. Do we need to say more about that or should I give you another one? I give us another one. Okay. So the second one, and we've really spoken to this somewhat already. Imagine if all the people who wanted to change the world knew they can. People have an abiding, built-in desire, craving to make a difference in the world. They want to do that. So our work is about making that possible for other people. And how do we do that? By ourselves beginning to believe it, to believe in self-efficacy, your word agency, to begin to believe that. The first step seems to me to be to believe that the world can change, that it can be better, that it can be strengthened. That's the first part. The second part is that, that I can do something. I can have an influence. I can make a difference. And even if that difference is just in my life and a person I'm relating to, and that person goes and relates to someone else. I mean, sounds simple and really sometimes you believe that, that it sometimes can be just small things. That's why I named the website Ever Widening Circles, because these well, ripples that we're all creating are going to land on shores that we can't imagine. And unfortunately, the opposite is true as well. Yes. If it's toxic and it's yes. negative, it's going to do that. In fact, I think it'll travel further faster than it will if it's positive. Yes. But sometimes it's like just lighting that little fuse. And because it's different, seeing this in a life-affirming way, sometimes it's just a complete breakthrough. Well, Jim, this has been a magical hour. I, I know we could go down rabbit holes on probably seven subjects that we touched on. The show notes are going to be great for this, everybody. And we talked about lots of things that we, you, books that and people that Jim referred to, that'll all be in the show notes as well. Jim, where can people connect with your work as a next step? Actually, just sending an email and mentioning this, mentioning your name is sufficient, and then we'll guide you to it. And the reason I say that is because until now, all of our work, our retreats and so forth, the books obviously go to Amazon for bounce back higher if you're interested in that. And if also, let me be quick to say, if you have more resources in terms of your will and your desire to make a difference in the world than you have financial resources because of the country, the circumstances you're in, or the circumstances you're in wherever you are, tell us and we'll make sure you get a copy. It's, this is not about making money. It's about making a difference. Now, the thing about the retreats is they've always been by nomination. Someone who has been a, is an alum can then nominate someone else. But anybody who's in your circle, who's attracted to this, is our kind of person. And that's what we really want to find these people. And we're not trying to change people. We're trying to, to support and reinforce people who already have this predisposition to make a contribution, to see things in a brighter way. And so let us know and we'll see what we can do for you. Oh, that is so lovely. Thank you so much, Jim. I mean, this is obviously the reason why Jim and I are on the same wavelength. I, I look at what I do with Ever Widening Circles and this podcast, the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast and all of it as a way to be multipliers for the best impulses in others. And Jim is right in absolute alignment with that. So for more information about anything that Jim and I talked about, look in the show notes. And remember that it, it would be great to check out the event that we're talking about at the break today, because that is going to start you on a new journey to find more purpose and meaning in your own life. And that's what makes life worth living. And all, as always, dive into ever-widening circles. The articles there are crazy important to help balance. They're like the, gosh, the, the app is like the antidote to the negative news in the palm of your hand. Check out articles there that you think you won't be interested in. It's not puppies and mailboxes. 
These are things that no, these are articles. This this is stuff that should be on the evening news that we're just not hearing about, and we are celebrating it. And I hope all these connections to goodness and progress help you carry through your week and you find all the joy and wonder that Jim and I have been talking about. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Let's all take a breath. (laughs) Okay. 